Heavenly Father, how is it that you, being a thrice holy God, would call us sinners into this place? Only by grace do we find ourselves here professing Christ as Lord, being called sons and daughters of a king. Only by grace are we chosen and set apart and considered beloved by you. We know that you do all this for your own glory and for your name's sake. I pray it rightly humbles us this morning, knowing that not a soul here is worthy of your presence. Not a single member of this church deserves to have eternity and eternal life with you. But you, by your sovereign grace, have decided to bless us immeasurably, not only with life now, but for all eternity. We ask, Lord, that you would be gracious with us this morning. Help us to see the power of your holy word. Help us to see how it has the power to transform hearts, to make us new, to put off the old and put on the new, that we might walk holy lives truly set apart for your glory. We ask that you would show us how to do that, Lord. Instruct us this morning from your word, and then by your grace, give us the power and desire to exercise this means of grace, to have your word dwell in us richly, so that we each and every day will be a brilliant light in this dark world. We ask this, Lord, that you might bless us as a people, and that you might Bring yourself honor and glory in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. If you have a Bible, please open up to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we, uh, we made it to verse 17 this week. Um, it is a, an instructive chapter that... Paul wants us to hear and not just go okay to, but he wants us to hear and actually do. And so we want to be hearers of the word and doers of the word simultaneously. For the past several weeks, he's been saying, listen, you've been saved by grace as a result of the great work of Christ on the cross. You've been brought in as sons and daughters, and you've been equipped with the Holy Spirit to live differently not how you used to live and not how the world lives, but to live as a chosen, holy, beloved people. And Paul says, and in light of that, I want you to put on these attributes. And we've looked at ten already. Ten holy characteristics that are to define God's people. We are to have a compassionate heart. We're to exercise kindness, humility, meekness, we are to be patient and forbearing. We are to forgive and to love. We are to have peace and thanksgiving. These are to be the people that we are. We're to enjoy them and we're to exercise them. Not to make our way into God's good grace, but because we have been redeemed into it already. You are already chosen holy and beloved if you are in Christ. And so to put on these characteristics and to live like this not only affirms, listen, it not only affirms your current standing in Christ, but it reveals to the world the amazing power the Word of God has to change wretches like us. 
And he continues to do that great work to transform dead, rebellious, God-hating, self-glorifying sinners into, he calls us, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart for God's own glory. So, if, my beloved, if we understand this to be true, if we understand the great work that Christ has done to bring us in, and we understand these characteristics that we are to put on, I think the hardest part about this teaching, at least for me, is how do I do this? How do I put on kindness and humility and meekness when I am not kind and I am not humble and I'm not meek? How do I forgive when I don't want to forgive? And how do I love with an agape love when I'm so self-centered? How do we do it? Where do we find what we would call the means of grace? Where do we find the power to exercise these commands, these imperatives given by Paul? Where does it come from? I know if you are like me, every single morning you wake up and that old man is there and he's just on you. You wake up every morning, you fight. You fight to be holy. You fight to worship God. You fight to live a day that brings Him honor and glory. Paul knew this struggle. This was not foreign to him. It was the great apostle who said in Romans 7, For I have the desire to do what I do. I, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Listen. Romans 7, verse 19, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. He says, this I keep on doing. I keep on doing it. So instead of leading us to religion, which Paul would never do, and instead of saying, listen, try really hard, just exercise it by your own strength and your own will, he doesn't do that either. He brings us to the gospel of grace and the word of God. He says, there is power in the word. So I want to answer the question as to how we do this. Paul answers that for us here in this passage. And then I want to look at how we do the how. How do we put on these attributes? By putting the Word of God deep in us. I want to do that by looking at four, four things from the passage. One, the power of the Word of God. And it is powerful. Number two, the transformation of the mind. Number three, the purification of the heart. Number four, the subjugation of the will. The power of the Word of God, the transformation of the mind through the Word of God, the the purification of the heart through the Word of God, and the subjugation of your will by God's Holy Word. This is wonderfully instructive. And I would love nothing more than for you to leave today, not only in worship of Christ, but going, I now know how to better have God's word dwell in me richly and deeply that I might be changed. So let's, let's listen. You, we just had a chance to sing lyrics that should have stirred your soul and quickened your heart and made you ready to hear. So let's listen with all our might right now. Number one, the power of God's word. Look at verse 16. Paul said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. When he says let, it's not as though grant permission to. It is an imperative. He says, I want you to do this. Have God's word dwell in you richly. Have the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now that certainly at this point in time, as he's writing to the Colossians, would include the totality of the Old Testament. Even Jesus Christ said in John chapter 5, verse 39, the scriptures testify to me. 
The entire Old Testament pointed to Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament is included in the word of Christ that Paul wants to, us to have it dwell richly in us. But it also includes all the oral testimonies at this point in time of the apostles. All the teachings that came directly from Jesus given to the apostles that were now circulating amongst the churches. Teachings very much like Paul gave us in chapters 1 and chapter 2. When he talked about the supremacy of Jesus Christ and his preeminence. When he magnified Christ and set set him up on that glorious throne as king and savior. And how God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. Paul said in verses 13 and 14 of Colossians 1, delivering us from the domain of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he told us how we, were, we have been hidden with Christ in God. This power of the word, this is the gospel of grace, this great creation, fall, redemption story. This is the word that he's talking about. We have it in both the Old and New Testament now. And Paul says, I want you to take that word on a daily basis, and I want it to dwell in you richly. The word dwell literally means house or home, so we get the concept. He wants wants the word of God to, to be at home in us. Not a stranger and not a foreigner. Not a guest or a frequent visitor. Not a spare room or an add on but completely at home in you richly, deeply, completely, occupying every nook and every cranny of your total being so that nothing in you, nothing about you, is absent this powerful word. It means your mind, your heart, all of your actions. The word of God permeates and makes itself at home in you. And this is the answer to the question we've all had for the past few weeks. How do we do this? How do I put on a heart of compassion? How do I be meek? How do I love? And how do I forgive? Paul says right here, let the word of God dwell richly in you, and then you'll be able to dress like the new man or new woman that you are in Christ. Let this word saturate you. Are you saturated in the word of God? This is a rhetorical question, but I want you to answer it in your heart. Are you saturated? Does the word of God come out of your mouth when you speak? Does the word of God captivate your thoughts when you're awake and when you're asleep? When you speak, do you speak the word of God? When you think, do you think the word of God? When you sweat, do you sweat the word of God? If you were to go into surgery this morning and a surgeon were to put an incision in your skin, would you bleed the word of God? You get the point. Paul's saying, I want it to permeate every aspect of your life, to be infused in every part of your person, without exception. Without exception. So, I'll ask you again, does that describe you? Does that describe you? Does the Word of God dwell in you richly? Many things dwell in us. We have invited many things into our home. Every day we do that. We invite music, and we invite people, and we invite movies, social media, sports teams. We invite our work. We invite our anxieties, and we bring them all in. The question is, does the Word of God supersede them all? Does the Word of God have preeminence in your life, in your home? Does it have the greatest influence over what you watch, 
Does the Word of God determine how you speak to one another? Does the Word of God shape the company that you keep, your friends, your co-workers, the members of the body of Christ? Does the Word of God dwelling in you show you and teach you and instruct you how to love your spouse or how to raise your children or how to treat your neighbor? Is it the Word of God that has compelled you to be here this morning to be part of a worshiping community on the Lord's Day? Is it the Word of God that has gathered you as a member of a local body of Christ? Is the Word of God instructing you on how to be a member? If it does not, if the Word of God does not dwell in you deeply, then the compassionate heart and humility and the patience and forgiveness and love that Paul has instructed us to put on, you will not be able to put on. And if you do, you'll put it on in such a way where it will not look right. You'll be disheveled. How come? Why can't I, why can't I be humble and meek in Christ? And why can't I love like Christ? And why can't I forgive like Christ unless the Word of God dwells in me richly? Because you have no power apart from the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 said, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Listen to this piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is the primary means, the primary instrument that God gave to the Holy Spirit to use in us to change us from the inside out. His Holy Word to make us the new man and the new woman, putting on the righteous clothes of Jesus Christ. The Word of God is not a man-made concoction. And it's not a collection of religious sayings. And it's not a set of moral principles. And if you think of the word of God like that, then you do not know the word of God. You do not know this word that I'm preaching. This word levels people. This word makes it almost impossible for me to speak before I enter the pulpit. It always makes me cry. It is living and active. And it is the power used by the Holy Spirit to change you. You know, the psalmist asked the same question. How do I live this holy life? How do I put on these righteous garments of God? Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living what? According to the word of God. That's how. I love how simple that is. And yet, oh, we struggle so much. Of all people in all of human history, what, what do we have access to? So many people, their only access to the Word of God was on a Sunday morning when they heard preaching from the pulpit. They didn't have Bibles. They didn't have concordances. They didn't have online the Greek and the Hebrew and commentaries that you have at your fingertips and on your phones. We of all people should have the Word dwell in us most richly. I mean, this should, we should be a people and a generation truly set apart in church history. When a hundred years from now, they look back and say, when those people got it, when they got the word, they had their Bibles and they had all that access to information, did they not live it out? In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus said that God's word is the very food in which we sustain our daily lives. He said, man shall not live by bread alone. You heard this from Deuteronomy earlier. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In Matthew chapter 7, he said, the word of God is the very foundation upon which we are to build our entire lives. 
Matthew 7, 24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine, the words of Christ, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Luke chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus said, Blessed are those, happy are those who hear the word of God and what? And keep it. And James goes so far, James in James 1.21 says, The implanted word is able to save our souls. How powerful is this word that you have in your hand? Many of you have your Bibles open right now. How powerful is this word? It is powerful enough to keep you on the path of purity, to sustain you daily, to serve as your foundation, to guarantee your happiness. And as James said, it is powerful enough to save your soul. That's a word worth knowing. So how do we get it in deep? Do you believe me on the first point? That this is the teaching that Paul is saying, you want to put on the righteous clothes and have the word of God dwell in you richly. So my question then is, well, how do I do that? I mean, it's just a constant, I don't get it. I want to put on these righteous clothes. And you said, I got to have the word dwell in me deeply. How do I do that? He gives us three things here that are extraordinary. And one, I would say even a bit odd. He says, you got to transform your minds, purify your hearts, and subjugate your will. The word of God in you will transform your minds through teaching and admonishing. It'll purify your hearts through singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And it will subjugate your will by doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you're ready for the how of the how. Yes? Are you still with me? All right, praise God. Point number two, transforming our minds. Look at verse 16 again. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So he gives us the first how. How do I have the word of God dwell in me richly? Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And you've heard that all wisdom before. This was the beginning prayer in Colossians. Do you remember weeks ago when we started? This is what Paul was praying for the church at Colossae and for the saints throughout the centuries. He said, may you be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then he said, for what purpose? Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Same theme. In all wisdom that you might know Christ, that we might put on these garments of righteousness and live lives that are pleasing to him. And Paul says here, that is accomplished in you through teaching and through admonishing. Through teaching and through admonishing. So this business of teaching is an instruction. It is didactic. It's we are sharing with one another the faith that we know according to the word of God. It's instructing our brothers and sisters in the ways of the faith. Simple concept. Who is God? Who is Christ? What work did he in fact accomplish to redeem us from hell? Who were you before Jesus Christ? You were dead in your sins and transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Who are you now in Christ? You are chosen, holy, and beloved, hidden in Christ with God. The full counsel of God we are to give and we teach. We are to talk about heaven and hell, salvation and damnation, grace and judgment. We are to teach our husbands how to love their wives. We are to teach mothers how to raise their children. We are to teach children how to obey their parents. We are to teach on how faithful God is to us, to be a people in every arena of life as employees and as employers to honor Christ. How are we to be citizens of this country? How are we to be members of a local community? How are we to worship God in a local church? 
We are to teach all that pertains to life and godliness, teaching and being taught. And then he says, you must admonish one another as well. That word admonish, many of us, we hear it, we go, yeah, I think I know what it means. It's a compound word in the Greek, and it literally means to put in the mind, to put something in someone else's mind. So that sounds kind of weird. We do it all the time. It's reasoning with someone, usually in the form of a warning. In the context of Scripture, it's bringing the Bible, the Word of God, to present to someone logically, to explain it to them so they can understand it and by God's grace, submit to it. It's the same word we use. It's nuthetic or nutheos. We use it for nuthetic counseling. When someone has a great struggle, what do we do as a Christian? We open up the Bible and we say, listen, this is what God's Word says. This can help you. This is good. This is powerful. If, for example, you struggle with a sin of anger, it, it generally is not for most people. It's not a teaching issue. I mean, most men who come and say, I'm struggling with anger, no, it's not okay for me to yell at my wife. I know that. It's not a teaching issue. It's an admonishment issue. It's opening up the Word of God and helping them see how wicked and wretched that sin is to God and then showing them the way out. You might, if you're a good counselor, take them to Matthew chapter 5. And you say, well, listen to what God thinks about anger. Jesus said in Matthew 5, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the flames of hell. That's serious. That's serious. And then you'll be gracious, and you'll take him to Ephesians 5 and say, this is how you overcome your anger. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul said, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. You bring them back to the cross that they might see the love that Christ has for them and, and take that anger away. So we're to teach and we're to admonish. But I don't think that's the most challenging part of this verse. Look again at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And now we got a problem. Now we got the struggle. You say, well, no, wait, wait, wait. I don't have a struggle here. That teaching and that admonishment, that's a pastoral duty. That's a deacon duty. That's a ministry leader's duty. That's not what this verse is saying. This says teach and admonish one another. He's talking to the totality of the church. And here's the hard part. If we really, listen, my beloved, if we want to put on these garments of righteousness. And Paul says, in order to do that, you must have the word of God dwell in you richly and deeply. Then we, the people of Christ, we as a body of believers, we must be busy about teaching and admonishing one another. This is our collective responsibility, and I would argue our collective blessing. But in in order to do that, you can't teach what you do not know. So in order to teach someone the word of God, you have to know the word of God. I would say, too, in order to be taught well the Word of God, you have to know that what they're teaching you is not contrary to the Word of God. So this requires a knowledge of God's Word, but it also requires a knowledge of one another. We have to know each other. I'd say we have to know each other well. How do I know what word to bring to you? If I just bring to you this teaching on anger, and I take you to Matthew 5 or Ephesians 5, and I say, i got to deal with your anger, but I'm not an angry person. I'm a jealous person. You say, oh, all right, all right. Or I bring to you teaching on, on greed. And you said, I'm not greedy, I'm slothful. We've got to know each other well enough to bring the exact word to the person, to teach them rightly what they need to hear, and then to teach them well how to overcome 
that particular sin. In other words, we bring a specific word from the word of God. We don't just say, hey, we'll read the Bible. I mean, that's helpful, but that's not terribly helpful if we're trying to teach specifically. If you want to bring the word, if it pertains to anger or selfishness or, or laziness or irresponsibility, and we want to do that as a church until Paul says, Ephesians 4.13, until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So that means how long are we going to teach? As long as you have air in your lungs, until Christ comes again, we're going to be in the process of teaching and being taught. So how well are we doing on this, my beloved? Honest reflection for yourselves. How much of your week is spent teaching another brother or sister in Christ? How much of your week is spent being taught by another brother or sister in Christ? If, it's, if it doesn't exist at all, then we're, we are not submitting to this call to have the Word of God go in deep, requiring the teaching of one another. We must not forget. Remember, we're talking about the transformation of the mind here. Do not forget what your mind was like before you came to saving grace in Christ. You weren't, you didn't, you weren't saved one day, and then suddenly your mind was instantly transformed and purified, and now you have all right thoughts and all right motivations. It's not how it works. You are saved by grace, and in that you have the ability now to go back to the Word of God with brothers and sisters in Christ and have your mind shaped by it, transformed by the Word, daily and radically reoriented to the truth of God. Before I was saved, I was perfectly comfortable lying to my employers about why I didn't show up for work. Perfectly comfortable. Oh, I was sick. I wasn't feeling well. Or, I, you know, I was out of town, or I had a death in the family. Lots of deaths in my family when I was unsaved. After coming to a saving grace, these patterns just didn't j disappear. There was that desire intensely to do that. And so how did that change? Brothers and sisters in this church came alongside me and said, you, you know, you can't tell your employer that your aunt died three times. You can't go and lie about being sick or being out of town when you were not sick and not out of town. And they would teach me and they would warn me. And by God's grace, through the Holy Spirit, I would listen. And over time, those sins became apparent to me. And my mind was no longer conformed to the pattern of the world. It was transformed and renewed by the Word of God brought to me by my brothers and sisters in Christ. I am so thankful that I had People who loved me and knew Christ and took seriously 2 Timothy chapter 3 and brought it into my life. They believed Timothy. They believed Paul when he said all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And they exercised that in my life. And we are to one another. So the first way we see to have the word of God dwell in us richly is by teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Second way, the purification of the heart. Point number three, the purification of the heart. Now, some of you might think this a bit odd, especially if you're not musically inclined. This is one of the more profound teachings that come out of verse 16, and I still don't think we get it. So let's try to, let's try to get a better hold of it today. 16 again, look with me, please. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And then he says, 
singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In other words, the way we go after the heart, in order to get the Word of God to dwell in us richly, we sing, sing, sing unto the Lord. You ever wonder why we do so much singing here? Seven, eight songs a Sunday. Some of you come in and say, oh, man, are they going to stop singing? It is part of the service. And evangelicals don't just sing because we want to be different from the Catholics. We sing because we are commanded to sing. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 tells us why we sing. It is for the glory of God and the spiritual maturation of the believer. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, lyrics and melodies that are to cultivate a love for Christ, to go deep where, where standard prose do, cannot get, the song does, and it goes into your heart. I do, I, I do not make it through the beginning of our worship service to the time of my pulpit without crying at least once in a song. Most of the time, it's conviction. I'm singing these lyrics and saying, that's not me. That's not me. And then I have Christ say, yeah, but it is me. So there's some debate over these categories. I just want to touch them. I don't want to touch the debates. There's, a, there's enough scriptural understanding of the, of the general boundaries. So I'll just give them to you quickly. The Psalms, that's pretty easy. It's the Psalms of the Old Testament. The writing is to the Colossians, New Testament not gathered yet. So he's talking about the Psalter, the Hebrew songs. The songs of old that the Hebrews would sing in the glorification and magnification of God. If you know these psalms, then you know they are rich in theological understanding. The psalms tell us about God. The psalms tell us about ourselves. They talk to the salvation to come in Jesus Christ. They give hope to God's people. Listen to how Psalm 107 talks about teaching salvation and atonement. Listen to this. Psalm 107. Now this is in a song. I won't sing it to you because I don't know what the melody was then. We don't have that piece. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. You hear your sin and your bondage? For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. Salvation and atonement in song. So we have the Old Testament Psalter. We have hymns. <laughs> Listen to me. These are not the hymns we sing today, right? There are many of our brothers and sisters who use this particular passage in Colossians 3.16 to argue why churches sing hymns. We sing mostly hymns, but not because of Colossians 3.16. Most of the hymns that we sing are, are Reformation or post-Reformation hymns, which means they came 1,500 plus years after Paul wrote the letter. I don't think he was saying, 1,500 years from now, sing the hymns that are going to be in your hymnal. So let's just get that clear. It's not the hymns that we sing. So what were they? The hymns were songs of praise. They were songs of praise. We have a couple examples um, in, the, in the New Testament that we know historically were used as psalms. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, the doxology of Jesus Christ. We have evidence that in the early church, that was a hymn. And, and you know why. It read like a hymn when I, when I worked through it the first time. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus Christ was an early hymn in the church. And that makes sense too. 
So we have psalms, we have hymns, and we have spiritual songs. And this is probably the one that's debated the most. Um, most believe that they were the testimonies. They were the simple testimonies of the work of Christ and, and the, the grace in the church. One example would be Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song. This would be a spiritual song, a testimonial. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It's a spiritual song. It's a spiritual song. So what do they all have in common? What are the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs that Paul is talking about? What do they all have in common? They all, without exception, reveal God's word. They are lyrically rich with the word of God, talking about the word of God, magnifying the word of God. And they tell us the story. They tell us the story of God's creation, fall, redemption. They tell us the story of the gospel again and again. And so the question for some of you might be, but why why music? Why music? Why would Paul call upon his people? Remember, he wants them to live holy lives. And he says, to live a holy life, you've got to have the word of God dwelling in you richly. And he says, sing. And he said, well, shouldn't we study? Shouldn't we go to college? Shouldn't we get degrees? And he says, sing. And sing and sing and sing. And don't ever stop singing. It's one of the most reiterated commands in the entire Bible. Sing, sing, sing unto the Lord. Psalm 96, 1 and 2, O sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, sing, sing, sing. Why? Why so much song? I'll give you a few that just came to mind. One, I mean, is it's one of the best ways for us to hear and remember eternal truths, is it not? I don't think one of you tomorrow morning will be repeating verbatim my sermon from today. I don't think you will. You'll say, now point number two. And you won't do that. But you will sing some of the songs we sang today, will you not? These lyrics will be there. And if, if they're good lyrics, if they're rich lyrics, you'll be singing them and you'll be preaching them. And by God's grace, others will hear. And they'll say, what are you saying? And you can tell them. What a great way amidst a people, many of whom were illiterate, who did not have the word of God, to teach the word of God, to communicate it, enable us to remember it over a period of time through lyrics. I also believe it was an affirmation of the power of God. I mean, songs, there's something about singing collectively that empowers us and encourages us as a people. And we've seen this, we've seen this outside of the church as well. Most militaries, even today, they have songs that they sing. Some, one that you might know from the Civil War when the troops were, especially in 1963 and 64, as the war waned on and they, they wanted to go home, a song came out and both sides were singing it. When Johnny comes marching home again, do you know this one? When Johnny comes marching home again, hurrah, hurrah, we'll give him a hearty welcome then, hurrah, hurrah, the men will cheer and the boys will shout and the ladies, they will all turn out and we'll all feel gay when Johnny comes marching home. And it invigorated them. They thought, I'm going to get home. I'm not going to die in this battlefield. The same hope of our making it home, the same hope of my making it home, is kindled every single time we sing, we will feast in the house of Zion. That encouraged me so much. Every time I think, I will feast one day because of Christ in the house of Zion. 
So we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to instruct, to encourage. And I, I want to hit this one before I move on, uh, to worship. And just to worship. There's a movement in music, and this is why it's so powerful to manipulate. But there's a movement in song upon the heart that does something like nothing else to get you by God's grace to a right place before the cross to see Christ. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That is worshiping to God. That means, my beloved, I pray that when you come here and we're singing, you're not silent. I pray that when we're singing, you're not just mouthing the words. I pray that when you sing, you realize this is one of the supreme means by which we manifest God exalted. One of the supreme ways that we worship Him through song. You can express to Him your heartfelt gratitude and thanksgiving collectively in ways that we cannot do alone. And there is, there's something about our gathering. I got to tell you, one of my favorite parts of service is when we sing. I can't wait. And when it's time for me to preach, I go, I know I'm supposed to preach, but can we sing longer? Can we sing more? We had a chance to sing before our Thanksgiving meal in the fellowship hall. Wasn't that extraordinary? We sounded like 10,000 tongues singing. And there were maybe 55 of us. It is this form of worship that causes the word to go deep. You want the word of God to go deep in you? Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. And this is not some contemporary evangelical thought. Martin Luther said this. He said, I truly desire, this is 16th century now, I truly desire that all Christians would love and regard as worthy the lovely gift of music given to mankind by God. The riches of music, he writes, are so excellent and so precious that words fail me whenever I attempt to discuss and describe them. That's an extraordinary statement, given Martin Luther was one of the most verbose theologians to ever live. This man wrote entire libraries, and he can't, it's so magnificent, he said, I can't put pen to it. He said, next to the word of God, this is amazing, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. It controls our thoughts, minds, hearts, and spirits. This precious gift has been given to man alone. Now listen to this. That he might remind himself that God has created man for the express purpose of praising and extolling God. That's why we're here. So when we sing, we are engaging in the very purpose for which we were created. To worship and magnify God. And something supernatural happens. Something does. The Holy Spirit gathers and it's almost as though heaven comes down to earth and we begin to participate in song with the angels around the throne. That's how it should be for you. If that has never happened in the presence of corporate song, then ask God to show you what we're really doing when we sing to the Lord. So when you were singing this morning, were you being instructed? So much theology in those songs that we had a chance to sing. Were you being encouraged? Were you being encouraged to continue marching? And were you worshiping? We try really hard to select songs that match the passage so that when I go to preach, you're like, oh, we just had a chance to sing about that. It's not coincidence. We actually try really hard to have the, the songs themselves magnify the Word of God because we believe that if the Word of God dwells in you richly, you'll be able to live the life that God has called you to live as a chosen holy and beloved people. You'll find your heart rightly changed 
by these lyrics. And that's why the lyrics are so important to us as well. We, we strive to have lyrics that are theologically rich, that are not anthropocentric but theocentric. They, they, they focus on God, His majesty, the work of Christ, the cross and the gospel, and how we're caught into that and we're wrapped up with it in Christ. And so we strive for that as well. And your participation, your hearing one another sing, and your singing to the Lord as well causes the word to go into you and infuse and move about to make its dwelling place in you so that you might grow in your love of Jesus Christ. So if we desire for the word of God to dwell in us richly and in so doing put on these clothes of righteousness that Paul has called us to do, then we must transform our minds by teaching and admonishing one another. We must, listen, we must purify our hearts by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God with thanksgiving. And I'll give you one more and I'll close. We must subjugate our will to His. We must subjugate our will to His. Look at verse 17. Paul says, In whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Paul says, you want to change? I mean, you want to be a different people? You want to put on these articles of righteousness, kindness, humility, meekness, love, patience? You want to do that? Your, your mind must be transformed through teaching and admonishing. Your heart must be transformed through song. And you must, by God's grace, submit your will to God's will. Cultivating in us a desire to do everything for the glory of God. To captivate your will in total. This is, my beloved, the summary verse. Verse 17 is the summary, going back to Colossians 3.1. And you could even say further back into chapter 2. We started off the chapter, and Paul said, we are to seek and set our minds on the things above. In, chapter, in verse 5, he said, we are to put to death what is still earthly in you. And then in verses 12 through 17, he said, you need to put on all these articles of righteousness. And he sums it up by saying, what? Whatever you do, everything you do, that means all words, all movement of your hands and feet, your entire life, he says, I want you to do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do it all with this singular, salient purpose to bring him honor and glory. And it is a perfect summary verse, is it not? That we might know that I'm here, you're here, we've been saved by grace to bring Jesus Christ's name honor our whole lives, all that we do. It's having Christ, who is your life, be the supreme motivation and an aim of everything. Paul made it simpler. I think for me, Romans 13, 14, he said, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Put Christ on. Put the Savior on each day. You know what that means, my beloved? That means every single day you walk through this life in Christ. Christ is on you. Christ is in you. Christ comes out of your mouth. Christ comes out of your thoughts, your hands, and your feet. It's Christ, Christ, Christ. To put Him on is to do everything, every moment of every day for His glory, for His honor. 
And this is our life in Christ. This is what you were saved into. The Bible says in Galatians 2.20 that you, the old you, you have been crucified with Christ. And then Paul says, it is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. And the life you live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. This is why you're here. This is why you're here. In Christ, your life no longer belongs to you. You were bought with a price. And that price was him. The one you were called to put on was broken. His body broken. His blood spilled for you. It was bought by the sinless man who out of his deep abiding love for you and for the church gave himself up. What does that mean? He took upon himself. Now listen. If you are in Christ, then Jesus Christ took upon himself the full punishment of your minds that were so willing to sin. He took upon himself the deceitful and impure heart that you exercised every moment of every day. He took upon himself the life that you lived to bring yourself glory instead of God glory. The life you lived for your own name instead of the name of Jesus. That's what he bore in his flesh upon the cross to redeem us from the judgment to come and bring us into eternal life. And he did it, my beloved. He did it not just to save you. He did it to save you and to equip you to live holy lives now to be this people we constantly talk about, that we pray about, that we encourage one another to, to enable you, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, to put on the holiness of Christ each and every day, to get up tomorrow, to go to bed tonight with an understanding that meekness is now who you are, Humility now defines you as a person. Agape love is what you want to express. Forgiveness you want to give. Peace in your heart you want to have. All the attributes that Paul talked about so that we become the living testimony to the world of how good our God, our God is, of how powerful he is to take someone like me and someone like you and make us so radically different that when they see us, they glorify God too because the world knows you the world knows you before you were in Christ. And if they know you now in Christ, there should be a difference. They should see Christ in you and the power of the gospel. My beloved, this is the power of the word of God. To change you from the inside out. That's why Paul says, let it dwell richly in you. Have it captivate every piece of you. Because if you do, it will change you by changing your desires. We always think, well, how... How does this work? I mean, how do I go from being someone who loves sin and embraces sin to someone who loves righteousness and wants to do that, which is contrary to my flesh? It's by having the desires of God in your life supersede the desires of your flesh every time you are tempted to sin. Every time you're tempted to sin. The Christian life is not Paul or the Bible telling you to use your willpower to suppress the evil in you, that never works. The mortification of sin comes by increasing the desires that God has given you for righteousness, for Jesus Christ, for His kingdom, for the testimony. Having a greater desire for God and a love for God is the best weapon to be transformed into the image of Jesus. So that when you are tempted to lust, after a member of the opposite sex, if the word of God is dwelling in you richly, 
then you will have a greater desire to be satisfied in Christ alone. And you will turn your eye away because your greater desire is to honor your Father in heaven and you're satisfied in Christ. You don't need that other person. When you have that desire to consume compulsively. Now listen, this is, this is a, a real epidemic in our churches today. When you have that desire to consume, not in order to sustain your life, but to consume because you need it for something other than life. You need it to complete yourself. You need it for your identity or your security. When you consume compulsively clothes, food, sex, entertainment, information, work, you put it on the list, whatever it is for you. When the Word of God dwells in you richly, there'll be a greater desire to honor Jesus Christ and live a life that is filled with gratitude and thanksgiving, and it will overcome that desire to compulsively consume. When you have that sinful desire to isolate, that means you go and you hide, and you don't care about anybody. This is, this is the ultimate form of being self-centered. I remove myself. I will not minister. I will not love. I will not pray for. I will not teach. I will not admonish. I will not sing with. I'm going to go be by myself. If the word of God is dwelling in you richly, you will have a greater desire to come out of isolation and engage people. Brothers and sisters in Christ who need teaching. Fellow saints who need a warning or a word of encouragement. The lost who have never heard about Christ, you will go and share the gospel with them if the word of God dwells in you richly because you have a greater desire to be with people than you will to be alone. And we struggle with that today. We like to go home. We like to close our doors, and we like to hide. In a healthy marriage, when your spouse is being particularly difficult to live with, and your desire, men, to love your wife as Christ loves the church, or ladies, to be the helpmate that God created you to be, if the Word of God dwells in you richly, those right desires will supersede your desire to flee or to fight or to go into that horrible, silent mode. And what will you do in a marriage where things are difficult? What will you do? You'll put on a compassionate heart. You'll put on humility and patience. You'll be forgiving. You'll be loving. You'll be thankful. You will seek peace. Why? Because the Word of God is dwelling in you richly. You see, my beloved Paul knew the power of the flesh just as we do, but he also knew, he knew the power of the word to supersede it, that it is infinitely more powerful than the struggles we have in sin. And so he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, for if you do, you put on Christ. And if you put on Christ, then you usher down all the power of heaven to live a holy life right now. And this brings him honor and glory. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we must confess that many of these attributes of holiness do not characterize our lives and they do not characterize us, Father, because we must confess that your word does not dwell in us 
richly. It is not deep. It is not moved to every area of our home. We dabble in it 20 minutes in the morning, a little bit in the evening, some on the radio, some on Sunday, but it has not captivated us. This word which has the power to change sinners, to save us, to edify us, to be the foundation of our life, it has not made its way in. And so we confess that to you, Father. Forgive us, please, for not handling the word properly and becoming the holy people that you've called us to be. And and the same breath we ask that you would make us those people. Lord, in light of this teaching from Colossians 3, 16 and 17, make us a people that long for your word every moment of every day. Make us a people, Lord, who are hungry. So hungry, Lord, that we cannot get away from your word We want to hear it taught to us. We want to teach it to others. We want to be rightly admonished and rightly encouraged from it. We ask, Lord, that you would do that great work in us as a people here at this church. We ask that you would have that same glorious impact on all your churches here in the South Bay, that in this place, the Word of God would exercise its right power by your Spirit to transform many, not just save us into the kingdom, that we we walk through this life meagerly struggling, sinning, but to make us a holy people, set apart. We ask that you would do that, Father, not only to bless your people here and now, but to bring yourself honor and glory forever. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.